Stephen Levy. Hi, Lauren. What are you doing here, hosting the Gadget Lab? I'm in here because you're in New York and I'm in New York. Yeah, I guess I'm more in your space this week. Well, I came here to see you and the rest of the Wired folks, obviously. I mean... So what do you think of our pad here at One World Trade Center? It's a very fancy building. It's very hard to get into which we'll talk about later. Well, they were suspicious of you, I could sure. Yes, I was very (laughs) suspect, and I had a hard time getting into the building this morning. But we're in a very nice podcast studio, so I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, this is state-of-the-art here. Stephen, do you think that we could just be doing this in the metaverse? Uh, Who's metaverse? (laughs) (laughs) I think that's something we should probably talk about. Let's get to it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired. And this week, the Gadget Lab is coming to you from New York. My usual co-host, Mike Calori, is not with us this week. He is trapped in a photo studio in Los Angeles getting some fun stuff ready for Wired that you're going to see later this year. But I am here with the Wired editor at large and friend of the pod, Stephen Levy. Hey, Stephen. Hi, Lauren. It's always wonderful to do the Gadget Lab. It's really great to have you. And Mike better stop taking time off, or I shouldn't say time off, but time away from the pod because eventually I'm just going to replace him. But uh, I guess we need to talk about Meta again. It seems like we talk about Meta so much on this podcast. But this week, the company formerly known as Facebook held its annual Connect conference, which is supposed to get app makers and meta enthusiasts and just the general public up to speed on what the company has been building. Mark Zuckerberg used the keynote address to talk all about his vision for the metaverse, the supposed next level of internet-connected experiences. It's interesting because Zuckerberg has really been front and center talking about all of this, and reportedly some of Meta's own employees aren't quite as enthusiastic about his vision of the metaverse. We're going to get to that, but first we should talk about an important part of actually making the metaverse happen, the computing devices and the infrastructure and the software that we might all be using in the future. We finally have seen the new Meta Quest Pro headset. Stephen, what do you make of this? Well, um, you know, they all said all along that uh, they're going to keep improving on the headsets they make. And, you know, they improved on the Quest 1 with the Quest 2. It only cost twice as much, was it? And now, you know, they've improved significantly with the new headset, the, the Pro, um, and it costs a, a multiple of, you know, maybe four times what the first one cost, right? At least three. Yeah, it's, 15, yeah, almost it's $1,500. Four. Almost four. And the MetaQuest Pro, the, sorry, the MetaQuest 2 is now 400 and the Meta. Quest Pro. Yeah, if it was six, if it was yeah. sixteen hundred dollars, it would be four times. But it's yeah. only fifteen hundred. Yeah, it could have made it easy. I'm, for a I'm space doing book. a rounding over here. <laughs> okay. So you know, so it it is it is expensive, and it's interesting the the terminology they use. I'd love to break down the terminology they do in, in, in these events. And they talked a lot about adventurers who are going to use it. And, you know, people who even want to get ahead of early adopters, they, you know, it, it, it's just sort of like uh, the people who always want to be first with something, right? Or really what it is, is developers who want to get in the game of, you know, building stuff for the company that's spending the most to make the metaverse. And they made a big deal out of how the, you know, some of the properties, some of the software for the metaverse is, you know, actually making money. This product made a million dollars in the first day, and they didn't mention what it cost to make and how much the eventual payout for uh, a product and, you know, a, a new metaverse experience uh, might be you know, 
front loaded, you know, to be the first buyers, and then you know maybe not much afterwards. So um, there's a lot of uh, verbal manipulation to show that you know, okay, this costs a lot of money, but um, there's this audience for it, uh, which may not be a big audience. Have you tried the headset? Yes, I have. Um, what did you think? Well, again, Im- Im- improved. One thing they did was they sort of split the hardware. So I think the battery goes in the back of your head instead of the front of your head. It's not like you have like a weight in the front of your head, you know, kind of pulling you down to the ground of the metaverse. And it's looks better, it's sharper, the images are better. It's a little more comfortable. Um, I don't imagine, you know, spending hours with it on my head. And it, you know, a- again, one step towards where we want to go, but where we really want to go is have it in glasses, right? Which they talked about too during the keynote. But um, it's sort of an, an, an interesting sidestep towards their vision to show that we can make a better headset, but you know, you want the Delta to be better and cheaper. Mm-hmm. So it's for mass popularization, it's going in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. I was surprised by the price, I have to say. Maybe I shouldn't have been because I've been getting briefings or reading reports or leaks over the past several months around what they were building. And just considering some of the optics that they were putting into this, it did seem like it was going to be like a prosumer level product and that therefore would be expensive. We're also hearing reports that companies like Apple, as they work towards their, you know, whatever their heads up display might be, the first iteration might be very expensive. We've seen things like HoloLens be incredibly expensive, you know, first run, second run out the door. So on that level, it's not super surprising. But to your point, in Meta's broader strategy of getting more people into the metaverse, this does feel like a sidestep. It was like not the thing that's going to make it mainstream. And what, what's super interesting about it in the demos I got, you know, they gave us a demo, they gave us a little speech and some of, with some of the materials that were eventually revealed in, in the keynote. Um, and then they gave several demos of, of different things. We went to room to room. And, yes, I did and, the same. Yeah, but this what one, demos did you have? None of the demos I got had anything to do with games. Which is interesting because it's the best game headset mm-hmm. you could imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there was one where we made art, and there was one. Uh, I think the key one was the workplace one, mm-hmm. which they want people to use. And you know, so they emphasized the social experience. But if you want a social experience, you want to get it in the hands of, of many, many people, right? So if you have a work group, then you got to get this headset for every person in, in the work group to get the full experience, mm-hmm. right? And you know, who's going to spend for their whole group to get a $1,500 headset that's going to be obsolete in two years? Yeah, and at the keynote yesterday, Mark Zuckerberg did invite Satya Nadella to join him, virtually, of course, because this was a virtual event. And they talked about a new partnership between Meta and Microsoft to offer 365 in uh, this MetaQuest Pro. And so it's not just Facebook's own software, which is called Workrooms. It's also 365 that presumably you'd be able to use. I did find when I went through those six stations that you mentioned to try different apps, I found the Workrooms one to be the most awkward. Like I enjoyed doing the virtual painting. And I enjoyed, um, there was one called 
world with like three O's, so I have to say it like that, <laughs> um, that I really enjoy that uses Google Maps to place you in a virtual world. And then that, you have that to was like cool. guess like where you one. are. Did you play the game where you like guess what city they dropped yeah, you they, in? Yeah, they, they just drop you somewhere. It's yes. like the TV show Quantum Leap, right? Yes, and then <laughs> you have to like look at the little signs and the, stri- the street signs and flags and like figure out like what country you're in and then fi- figure out like I actually got one of them right. I was like very close to Warsaw and I felt very proud. I was like, that looks like Polish. <laughs> um, yeah, and so, uh, you know, that was cool. But then, yeah, the final the final experience, and maybe it was just I was fatigued at that point because I was going on two hours wearing this, this you know, some version of a headset. Workrooms felt forced. It felt like, oh, look, you're in a virtual office and you're talking to some guy named Jordan and he's not actually here. He's in another office, but here's his cartoon avatar and you guys are going to put stickies on a whiteboard and discuss the stickies. And then also um, here's a uh, like a big conference room and a little conference room. And also here's a Mac key or an Apple keyboard that's virtual, that's laid over a real Apple keyboard on the desk in front of you that you can sort of poke at. And I was like, this is so, and then I, I just couldn't really, they didn't align, it was, it was misaligned, so I was having a hard time typing. And then they said, well, you could just like peek down the bottom of the headset to see the keyboard because the, one of the differences between this Quest headset and the, the less expensive one is this one actually does have some light coming in the sides. You have visibility on the sides of the goggles and below. So it's not fully enveloping your face. So they're like, you could just like peek around. And I'm like, I, this is not how I want to work. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the, the, the people showing me it told me, so when they use it, you could kind of carve out an area of your desk where the VR isn't on. So if your coffee cup is there, mm-hmm. you could say, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this so I don't knock over the coffee cup. Right? Mm-hmm. And But the, it seems to me the big benefit is if you want to have like this mass these massive displays in front of you right you could access them in vr but to me you know displays are relatively inexpensive you could buy three big displays and that's cheaper than buying the headset and also i think you're going to interact with those displays much better if they're in person there on your desk i i think that's a non-starter at this point you know the idea of getting rid of all your hardware and having it in a headset, even if they develop the glasses, you know, to do that. To me, that's okay if you're in an airport or something like that, and you want to, you know, duplicate your workspace, mm-hmm. you know, sitting there on one of those tables while you're waiting for your flight to be called, your flight's delayed, of course. Um, uh, that that could be useful, but generally for your main workplace, I I don't see that happening for for quite a long time. I will say this though. It's really easy to be hypercritical of these devices when they are not mass market or mainstream devices or just when they're not ready yet. And we're going to talk about the software in the second half of the show. I do think sometimes about the fact that this is it's an, it's an, an attempt at a new era of computing. But we have a foundation now for what a pretty amazing computing, personal computing can look like. And I think back to the time that maybe uh, Walt Mossberg, who's a mutual friend of ours, you know, when he was starting his column in the 1990s and the idea of personal computing was still very nascent, it felt like it was kind of a binary then. There was like the before personal computer time and then there were these new emerging personal computers. And yeah, they were too hard to use and difficult and they were really for like tinkers and hackers and computer nerds and stuff like that. But there wasn't this this basis for comparison. And now 
this shift is happening towards supposedly towards heads-up displays, but we already have, I have this laptop right in front of me that's pretty darn good. I have a mobile phone that I literally carry with me everywhere, like into the bathroom. Like I just, it's, I'm never without it. I sleep next to it. And so we, and it's pretty darn functional and does a lot of great things. Let's be connect with people around the world when I need to. So like, we're, I think we're like harsher critics towards right. these new things well, now. You know, I, I blame Clay, Clay Christensen for this. Why? Because, you know, he, you know, was this great figure, you know, he, he passed recently, um, who came up with the innovator's, the innovator's dilemma. dilemma. Right? Yep. And the idea is that when the new paradigm comes, the masters of the previous paradigm are at a disadvantage because they're invested in you know what they're doing now, and that's all their profits, and you know so they're going to be doomed by the next wave of technology that comes over. So the last wave of that was mobile, and the places that you know, were like in the you know, PC world, mm -hmm. right? You know, uh, got overwhelmed by mobile. It's a reset where the companies that dominate, like Microsoft, um, in the old paradigm, you know, sort of get shifted to the back. For a long time, Apple was you know kind of just breathing Microsoft fumes in terms of, you know, uh, they didn't have a lead. They were way behind. But then mobile comes and that flips, right? So Mark Zuckerberg is, you know, from the web world and mobile comes along. It's a near-death experience for Facebook. So he's paranoid about the next paradigm. He doesn't want to be a victim of the innovator's dilemma. So he gets obsessed with virtual reality. He sees this Oculus headset, he talks to his buddy Mark Andreessen about it. You know, this is the next paradigm. He's fixed on that. He buys the company 2014. Mm -hmm. It's almost 10 years. He thought in 10 years, this is going to be the next paradigm. Well, guess what? It's almost 10 years and it's still 10 years away. I don't mm -hmm. know how long, but he makes this giant bet on the company thinking this is the only way I could save Facebook and I'll, I'll call it Meta now in 2028. Mm -hmm. Right. So he's operating on a 2028 time frame to think of how he could be the master of the universe in 2028 while he's the master of the universe in 2016, 2017, 2018. And, and, and now in 2022, he's losing his grip on being the master of this universe while chasing the next universe. Stephen, hold that thought because it's an important one. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back with more VR talk, but here in real life. Stephen, as we were going to break, you started to touch on something really interesting, which is Mark Zuckerberg's obsession that this is our future. And it was uh, reported by both The Verge and The New York Times earlier this week that some of the employees working at Meta don't necessarily share that vision. Seems like there's maybe some skepticism there. Um, what do you make of this? And what does this mean for the future of what is known as reality labs at the company? Sure. Well, reality labs is this you know, research laboratory in the, you know, tradition of Xerox Park and other places. It's focused on solving the problems, you know, removing the obstacles between us and acceptable mixed reality, right? The, the, the one which will be so great that we're all going to adopt it, right? Right now, 
there's some scientific hurdles to this. You know, just the way we see things, the way you know we have to embed the electronics to make it you know lightweight, and you know there there's just these hurdles. Some of them are biological, right? That you have to do these fixes, um, and the technology isn't there yet, and they paid for the best scientists to try to, to fix them. It's a long-term project. And they kept saying that. You can talk about the language of the keynote. You know, they, they said it again. They gave us a little glimpse of what was going on in Redmond where the reality labs are. They're saying like, you know, uh, here's this cool technology. It's mm-hmm. not ready yet, right? Mm-hmm. You know, but they did one thing sort of amazing where they were able to get an avatar that actually looked like you know, um, in this case, Mark Zuckerberg, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and we should quickly recount just some of the things we did see out of that Reality Labs demo, which is it's run by uh, Michael Abrash, right? Correct, yeah. And so we saw electro an electromyography device, which is this wrist device that would potentially allow you to ditch the hand controllers in VR and just gesture. Um, we saw the realistic avatars. There was, um, they have legs in the future. Yeah. Uh, what were some of the other things that they showed off? Well, I think, you know, to me, the impressive thing was, you know, the, the the risk control, which is basically something that uh, at Facebook or Meta wanted to do this now, they couldn't. They spent almost a billion dollars for a company called Control Labs, which devised this technology, right? So they're, you know, one thing they're doing besides hiring scientists to invent the technology is that, you know, traditionally they just bought the technology. They bought, they bought a company. But I think the the, the point is, while they're building this in the future, they're also making a play for now. And they you know, literally rename the company. And what they've been doing is funneling some of the best minds of the company to say, hey, work on this now, mm-hmm. which is you know sort of like a wild, risky thing to do when you're the leading company in social media with a lot of challenges there, right? You've got you know, competition in TikTok. And you would think that they might want to innovate their way to cement their leadership or regain their leadership, one might even argue, in social media. But no, you're going to get rewarded much more handily to work in the meta part of meta rather than the Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram part of meta. And I think people, you know, in those areas, you know, probably aren't feeling appreciated. And the people in the other areas are worried that they're building things that aren't going to come to fruition for quite a while. Mm -hmm. And people move around in Silicon Valley, right? You don't want to be working on something that doesn't happen while you're there. Renaming the company does seem like it was a brilliant marketing tool for recruitment, at least, though. There's if a you certain want to, cachet well, now if you, if you want to work on Facebook that stuff. versus Meta, right, if you yeah. want to work on that. You know, it, it, it's interesting. You know, like a few years ago, I, w- I wrote stories about the AI efforts of all the big companies. And all of them were retraining their engineers to learn about machine learning, to be AI scientists rather than just plain engineers and scientists, right? And I think that made sense for all of them. That that, that worked for, you know, uh, Google, it worked for Amazon, you know, it worked for Apple, you know, and it, it worked for Meta because AI is built into everything. And they made a big deal talking about how AI was going to be built into the metaverse. I actually feel that the big driving technology in the next decade is not going to be virtual reality is going to be more AI, that we're Mm -hmm. at a pivot point in AI to get better and better and scarier and scarier. Um, And I think if I'm hiring engineers, I don't 
want them to be meta engineers first. I want them to be AI people. I want them to make the next breakthrough in AI rather than AR. It's fascinating. Just this morning, someone at a breakfast asked me, what are your thoughts generally on AI? And I said, I think that there need to be better guidelines and uh, policies in place like yesterday around AI. Because we, we were already seeing what it, like how powerful AI is in our computing experience. It's now it's affecting our lives. Yeah, well, those guidelines you know, aren't, aren't going to work. It's too widespread. If you put guidelines and the big companies have to follow them, there's going to be upstart companies that, that come up. And you know, um, I think we, there's a really interesting company called OpenAI, which started out as this great open source, responsible company, which is operating now like not as open um, mm-hmm. and, you know, has a deal with Microsoft, right? Mm-hmm. So if it is in them, it could be a research lab anywhere. It's, that's going to be a big, big concern that, you know, um, is tough to constrain. The White House came up with AI guidelines, mm-hmm. but put no teeth in it. This just said, we're just mm-hmm. suggesting this is a good idea to do, and and we're going to do this, um, you know, maybe in our social security agency, but they're certainly not going to do it in you know, the intelligence agencies and the military, right? And, you know, the military isn't going to say our AI isn't going to be, like, harmful or weaponized. That's what they're going to use it's it for. the point of the military. Yeah. To bring it back to Meta, so if you're Mark Zuckerberg at this point and you – have some employees who are skeptical about this tech, and you're wholly convinced that this is the future, this is at least the way the company needs to um, sort of pivot towards. At what point do you do you do you weed out those employees, right? As he has suggested, like, hey, if you're not on board, you should leave the company. I'm paraphrasing. Or at some point, do you actually heed that skepticism and say like this this might not be the thing this might not be the next big thing right well I mean, the most telling thing in those stories the, the the new york times and the verge was that some people you know they they sort of force you to you know do meetings in vr in some of these uh, areas of meta um and some people were saying we don't want to do it and they say well no you have to do it which is kind of wild because, you know, they expect people to run and embrace this as better technology. And if you you don't get your own employees believing that, um, that's trouble. Um, I think, you know, Mark, from what I know of him, and, you know, I've spent time with him, you know, he's pretty set in in his ways. You know, he could have a lot of people around him saying, Mark, don't do this. We don't think it's a good idea. And he'll listen to them and then sometimes just blow past it, you know, ignore it. But he's smart enough to know when something is totally untenable and to switch direction. In this kind of case, he's dug himself into a hole that the evidence is going to have to be super, super strong for him to say, you know what, maybe we shouldn't have acted so fast on virtual reality. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's going to take quite a lot for him to jar him out of that mindset. It's possible, you know, um, but, you know, he's really, you know, dug himself in on this one, that, you know, this is our giant bet. And that's the thing about a bet, that you could lose. And I'm sure that Mark Zuckerberg does not like to lose. Of course not. I don't know him super well, <laughs> but that is my guess. No, he does, he, does, he does not like to lose. And if you're an employee there, you know, and, you know, you're getting the message saying, if you're not on board with this, go somewhere else. You know, if you're a desirable employee, you'll go somewhere else. Right. 
Stephen, this has been super interesting. It's a real privilege to be able to tape a podcast about Meta with the person who wrote the book about Meta, although it was called Facebook then. Yes, it was. Yes, yes. it was. They, you know, they're trying to take my book. They changed the name <laughs> of the company. That's right? actually why Mark Zuckerberg yeah, yeah. changed but the I, company but also name. I, I wrote a story about virtual reality for Rolling Stone in 1990. What? It was the next big thing. What headset were you using? I used Jaron Lanier's headset. And uh-huh. then, you know, I, I went to like NASA. They had a thing set up there. Uh-huh. You know, with the, they called it the Sword of Damocles because the wire came from the ceiling. And uh, at the time, what sort of uh, prediction, what sort of timeline were people giving for when that was going to become the next big thing? Fewer than 30 years. And that was in the, you said that was in the 90s? 1990. Oh, all right. Well, we're, we've surpassed that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. It it, it, it was fascinating because everyone thought it's the next big thing. Um, Howard, I didn't. I chose not to write a book about it. You know, I thought that was a, a, a good thing. Instead, I wrote a book called Artificial Life, right? Which that hasn't happened yet either, but it might. I also, you wrote a book about crypto. Yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah. I guess that's happened. That's happened. The stuff happened. I wrote in that book, it, yeah. there it is, right? Yeah, you know? yeah. The market is a little volatile, but it is, it is in fact here. Um, all right. So this has basically just become the uh, podcast where we talk about Stephen Levy's books. Thank you. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to offer our recommendations for the other Stephen Levy books that you haven't read yet. Uh, we'll be right back. Stephen, what is your recommendation this week? I'm going to recommend uh, Play. Oh, okay. Um, it's called Leopoldstadt. It's by Tom Stoppard, who's one of my favorite playwrights. It was supposed to debut on Broadway in the spring of 2020. Circumstances led it to a later debut, but it's a fascinating uh, play. Prime Stoppard, maybe not as quite as good as Arcadia, but um, it you know, follows the fortunes and particularly the tragic misfortunes of a Jewish family uh, assimilated in Vienna beginning in 1899 and continuing through the rise of Nazism and the Holocaust. And where can people see this? They could see it in on Broadway in New York City. And if you're in town like you are now, I suggest you make it over to the theater to watch this really affecting play with all the word play and fun. You know, there is a little fun in there, weirdly, um, but mostly tragedy of Tom Stoppard and what might be his last great play. What stood out to you most about this this story? How relevant it is now. Um, you know, you've seen over the past few years, I've read a few magazine articles saying, well, I'm, I'm Jewish, I live in France, right? What are we reliving this time? And look at Kanye West, what he's saying there. And people are saying, are people reacting to anti-Semitism? So you would think that a play um, with those themes just would not be as searingly relevant as it is now, but it's a little scary in that sense. Mm-hmm. I think you're the first person to ever come on the Gadget Lab and recommend a play. Well, I think. Do you regret having me on now? <laughs> no, I think it's wonderful. I think we need to have more people who like plays come on the show. Uh, that also makes me think, like, wow, maybe we're a rather uncultured bunch. Like, we're like, we're like, you should listen to this Spotify playlist. Could a, could a play and, uh, work in in the metaverse? Could I, I mean, if you're sitting, I actually watched some of the keynote 
um, the kind of keynote in virtual oh, reality. Did. Yeah. Uh, I think a play could work. I think that's actually a, a great use case for it because it's a set amount of time. It's not some kind of game or work application that could theoretically be endless. It's a narrative. Um, you could design certain elements of either visual elements or audio elements, since it has spatial audio, to prov- provoke a different emotion or experience based on like where it's coming from in the in the virtual world. Like I think that's a great use case for it. You know, you know, I feel you'd have to rethink plays to do something you can only do in virtual reality, because otherwise, to me, the defining aspect of a play is you're physically in the room with the actors and they're giving it to you new each each, each time and their sweat and spit you know mm-hmm. is that there with you mm-hmm. right so mm-hmm. that's what makes theater super real um it's a synchronous experience yeah if you were going to do a vr thing you would you know kind of like have to totally break that fourth wall and have them sitting next to you or other kinds of things yeah Right, and there would have to be absolutely no latency because if you had multiple players coming in on different headsets and varying connections, that's interesting. Well, Stephen, I guess when uh, you eventually leave us at Wired, we know what you're going to do. You're going to go write plays for Meta, (laughs) the Mark Zuckerberg play, only in VR. When I leave you, I'll leave my avatar behind. You'll never miss me. (laughs) (laughs) We will definitely miss you, but let's not talk about that. Uh, Okay, the next step is you ask me my recommendation. And Lauren, what is your recommendation? My recommendation is also New York City-centric, which is tap to pay on the subway. Wow, game changer. I haven't been able to spend as much time in New York City over the past few years. Once again, for obvious reasons, the pandemic prevented some travel and just the ability to socialize and be around other humans for a while. Um, but now I'm, I'm back visiting at a somewhat regular cadence. And this time I've noticed that um, all the subway stations I've been going to have tap to pay. So there's no more like fumbling with your wallet to purchase a card and then raise, you know, and then and then swipe the card through multiple times and then just miss your train. Like you just tap to pay with your phone and it's incredible. And it's just made me realize how reliant I have become on tap to pay in general. I mean, I, I, a lot of times I walk out of, you know, my apartment or where I'm staying um, without my wallet these days. And, and when you got on the subway, how were things? It was okay. Good. Yeah, it was okay. It was traveling around. It was in downtown Manhattan where I'm staying and it was, um, it's it's been okay so far. And it made me think that here in um, our building in Condé Nast, which is like Fort Knox, it's crazy <laughs> hard to get into uh, for good reason. Uh, it, it, like, we should just have our identities on our phones. We should be able to just walk in and tap our phones and have everything there and be able to to get in that way. We have key cards, but then if you forget your key card, like maybe I did this morning, it's really complicated. So I know it's a fine line these days between how much technology do you want in place to expedite like entry um, or uh, because of surveillance, the threat of surveillance with everything that we do. Um, to me, there's no difference between tapping a key card that you know your company theoretically knows you're coming in and out um, versus using your phone. And I would just like to be able to use my phone to like tap into everywhere. Well, there it is. It's the old you know convenience versus you mm-hmm. know um, losing control of your data or mm-hmm. argument there. Mm-hmm. And convenience always wins. Yes. Well, tapping on the subway, tapping to pay, I'm definitely in favor of it. Well, visit us more often. Then. I'm going to do that. Um, Stephen, thank you. This was super fun. Yeah, I love that. Great to have you on. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you have feedback, you can find all of us in the metaverse. 
Just kidding. You can find both of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes. We'll put our handles there. Our producer is the excellent Boone Ashworth, and my trusty co-host, Michael Calore, will be back next week. Goodbye for now, and we'll see you in the metaverse. Hi, everyone. Michael from Gadget Lab here. I want to tell you about our friends over at The Big Take Podcast from Bloomberg News. Each weekday, they bring you one important story from their global newsroom, like how AI will upend your life, or why China's targeting the US dollar, and maybe how Joe Biden plans to take on Donald Trump. Oh boy. Check out The Big Take, a daily podcast from Bloomberg, wherever you listen.